Hello and welcome to the British Chamber of Commerce Singapore's podcast channel. With over 15,000 downloads since launch, we are excited to bring you season four featuring in-depth content on business, global affairs and news across Singapore, ASEAN and the United Kingdom. We've had some extraordinary guests on our channel, including W Series driver Abby Eaton. And we've got thoughts of the future now. Um, you know, I'd love to to try and kind of mentor some of the younger drivers. You know, renowned UK international education champion Professor Sir Steve Smith. Over about a four-year period, we kept increasing the resources going into mental health provision. Chief Executive and Director of the London Design Museum. Tim Marlowe. The way we design is actually thinking about the needs of, of everyone. And CEO of the industry cluster group at JTC, Alvin Tan. If you look at PDD, we are creating an ecosystem of companies, government agencies and industry association with digital space. Thank you, as always, for your continued support, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much first to I hope I pronounced it correctly. Um, Your Excellency Ambassador Zelenko, your words were so powerful, so inspiring. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for having me today. It's an honor um, to be here. I want to thank the British Chamber of Commerce and my dear friend Batya Schulman also, who invited me a few weeks ago and I was just so thrilled to get the invitation and to be able to share a little bit about my journey and my thoughts with you today. I'd like to begin by saying that there are two issues that keep me up at night. The first one is the global climate crisis. And indeed, I have just come back a few days ago from Antarctica. I was traveling with a group of scientists from the Earth Observatory of Singapore who were there to conduct research on the Antarctic ice sheet and look at the rate of melt and what this means for sea level rise, for coastal areas, and especially for Singapore and for our region. And I have to say it was a sobering experience. I'd been to Antarctica before, but never for science. Um, and you know, Antarctic, I don't know if you know this, but it's one of the fastest warming regions in the world, and it has big implications for our future. And unfortunately, the people who are least responsible for the causes of climate change will be most impacted. Another issue that is keeping me up at night is the epidemic of violence that women and girls experience all over the world still today. And I'm sure some of you are familiar with the statistic, one out of three women will experience some form of sexual or physical violence in her lifetime. And as a mother of two daughters, that is a frightening statistic to say the least. Both of these issues are deeply connected to the great inequity that exist still today all over the world. Now, 10 years ago, a chance encounter allowed me to pivot my life into a life of meaning, purpose, and adventure. I call it my tipping point, and I'll tell you a little bit about it in a moment. But before I do, I want to share a little bit more about my background, about my values, which have really shaped my advocacy and shaped the woman I am today. I was born and raised in the Philippines, and actually the three speakers today were all, all half Filipinos, which I think is kind of cool, so hip hip hooray to the Filipinos in the room. I'm sure there are a few of us out there. So I was born and raised in the Philippines, and I had many strong female role models around me growing up. This is a picture of my maternal grandmother. She's Chinese. She was Chinese-Filipina. She lived till 101, and she was the matriarch of our family. 
She had seven children, six daughters, and a son. My mother was her fourth child. And so growing up, I was surrounded by my aunties, or titas, as we call them in the Philippines, with big, strong personalities. I also, my parents also had a very loving home. I was very blessed to, to grow up in a multiracial, multilingual, and multicultural home, my father being Franco-Swiss. But I also was aware, growing up in the Philippines, of the great inequity that existed around me. Indeed, the Philippines has one of the highest rates of, of um, income inequality in the world. It is one of the poorest countries as well in our region. Of uh, 110 million population that we have, 20% live under the poverty line. We are also one of the most hazard-exposed countries in the region, uh, with typhoons and floodings, and we're also on the Pacific Rim of Fire, so we experience volcanic eruptions and earthquakes. And so as a child, I really saw firsthand how the violent changes in the weather would impact the poorest and most vulnerable around us. And I often felt powerless to help. What could I do as a child? My mother would try to involve us children as often as she could on, with charitable activities to bring food and, and clothing to the less fortunate, and reminded us often that privilege comes with great responsibilities, values that I try to live by today and pass on to my four children as well. Now, after the Philippines, I was very lucky to live across the world. I went to study in university in Japan. I had a career across multiple continents. And I came to Singapore in 2005. This is a picture of Singapore. 2005 has changed a lot since then. So I've been here more than 17 years. Can you believe it? This is my home. Um, and you know, I do believe in destiny. I believe that in life, you have meetings with people. You experience things that really can touch you deeply and shift the course of your life, and this is what happened to me. A few years after I came to Singapore, I met an incredible woman called Valérie Bofi, who was about to climb Everest, and she succeeded on the first try and on the summit of Everest. She had a banner that said, bearing the flag for women everywhere in support of a charity called Women for Women International that supports women survivors of war. And her act of courage and defiance touched me deeply. It hit me in the gut. To see someone do something so brave in support of other women in need, women who had lost everything to war and conflicts in countries that are ripped apart, <coughs> ripped apart by the horrors of war. And we heard from our ambassador, Katrina, how it is happening in her own country. It is really so awful and so destructive. That touched me so deeply. And it was if, you know, I, I had this overpowering sense and feeling because it came from a place of gratitude. Because as I said, I grew up in a loving home. I had a chance, I had a good education. I had many opportunities in my life and in my career. And so I felt that it was time for me to use my skills and experience to do more, to give back, and especially to support women in need. And so together, Valérie and I set up my first NGO called Women on a Mission to take all female teams on expeditions around the world as a way to support women who are affected by violence and abuse. And by that, I mean women survivors of war, women survivors of domestic abuse, of human trafficking, and other forms of violence and abuse. Now, violence against women is one of the most widespread, persistent, devastating human rights violation in our world today. And Women in a Mission's core objective is to support and empower these women through our advocacy work and fundraising. And it's been over 10 years now, and we're still going strong. We're actually planning our 12th expedition to cross the oldest desert in the world in Namibia this September in support of women survivors of war. 
And actually, I have a spot on the team, so in case anybody's interested, come and see me after. And our hope, of course, is to continue to do the work we do for many years, to continue to support some of the most marginalized women in the world. Now, five years after I set up Women on a Mission, I was becoming increasingly frustrated and alarmed, quite frankly, by what I was seeing around me in nature, what I was reading in the press, seeing the burning of our forests, the destruction of our ecosystem, the pollution of our oceans. And I felt frustrated. I didn't know what to do. I felt powerless. As you all know, climate change is the greatest challenge facing humanity today. What could I do to make a difference? And so I decided to inform myself, to better understand this crisis that was gripping our planet. And the more research I did, the more I understood that even though climate change is a global phenomenon, the effects are felt locally, and poor people suffer the most. And all the news surrounding the chaos around climate change, gender often remains the untold story behind it all. Of the 1.3 billion poor people around the world, 70% or the majority are women. They are hit the hardest. And so I decided to set up a second NGO called Her Planet Earth with different partners, again, taking all female teams on expeditions around the world as a way to support our charity partner, but with much more of an environmental focus. And over the years, we've been able to fund various programs in agriculture and wildlife conservation, trying to make women's uh, livelihoods stronger and more resilient to climate change while being kind to nature. And all these efforts may be small in the scheme of things. They are grassroots initiatives, but they have their own positive ripple effects around them and are moving things in the right direction. Both Women on a Mission and Her Planet Earth have a strong female empowerment at the very core, and both use sports and adventure as a way to make a difference. And over the last 10 years, I've been privileged to take hundreds of women on expeditions, some of them pioneering all over the world, from the Antarctic to the Arctic. We've crossed some of the hottest deserts in the world, in Ethiopia, in Iran. We've climbed mountains in the Himalayas. We were the first all-female team to stand up paddleboard down rivers in the Kingdom of Bhutan and cross the Arctic Circle Trail of Greenland in winter. And as you can imagine, this has all been in support of vulnerable women, and we were able to raise valuable funds to support hundreds of women directly and impact thousands more indirectly. And as a, as a person myself personally, it has really taught me so many lessons of humility and leadership. It has pushed me far outside my comfort zone on so many occasions, both physically, mentally, and emotionally. And there have been so many learnings from this experience. As we travel around the world, we meet with groups of women, and we, I became more aware of the issues that women face all over the world, and it has opened my eyes to the fact that still today, too many, many women have no voice. They are deprived of the most basic freedom, the right to live in peace and happiness with their loved ones, the right to education and self-accomplishment, the right to live with this respect and decency, the right to dream even. It has made me understand that it is no longer enough to advocate for equality or for equal opportunity for all. Equity needs to come first. We must recognize, as this, this uh, image illustrates so well, that equity understands that people come to opportunities with different circumstances. It's not an equal uh, playing level field. And so we need different resources. To, to, to address this unbalanced social system. Equity is a long-term sustainable solution, and if we can close the equity gap, we will be able to unlock the power and potential of women and girls. And I truly believe 
This is what our world urgently needs most. Because of the great inequity that exists, women are disproportionately affected by violence, by war and conflict, by economic crisis, by climate change and pandemics even. And this is true not just for women and girls, it is also true for poor communities, for racial minorities, for the LGBTQ community, for, gen for neurodivergent uh, people as well. And this is why I've recently set up a program called Brilliant Buddies to pair volunteers and mentors with children who are neurodivergent. And I also need volunteers for this program. All this to say that I truly believe each one of us can be a force for good and an advocate for positive change, for more sustainability in our community, for more equity in our society. When I was a child, I dreamt of traveling far and wide, and it is no accident that I ended up using sports and adventure as a way to have an impact. And yet I'm just an ordinary woman. You know, I'm just a, an ordinary girl, and because of maybe some of the bold and perhaps even brave choices that I've made over the years, it has allowed me to have some pretty extraordinary experiences. And I have found my purpose and my own unique way of changing the world one woman at a time. And so if you remember one thing from my remarks today, I hope it is that your voice and actions have power. So whatever you dream you can do, begin it now Take a step towards it, because I truly believe that each one of us has the power to add a little bit of magic in the world and impact it for the better. Thank you. Thank you so much, Christine. What a powerful message and a call to action to sponsor straight away. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So, been listening to your stories and personal examples with great interest. Uh, thank you for sharing your experiences. And what strikes me is that you will have different parts of, if you will, society, economy, businesses, charity, society coming in. But with complex problems like this, sustainability and equity, it's a bigger ecosystem that matters. And one of the things of driving action is that it can be very isolated. And actually, how do you tie it all together? How do you make businesses talk with charities, with governments, with other institutions to really make it meaningful? So I wanted to hear your experience as panelists as how you draw these lines and break down boundaries when you execute um, on driving gender equity and equality. So maybe, Naomi, I may start with you to give some of your views on that. Sure, sure. Um, so we look at this, I guess, from two different views. As um, you know, a receiver of some programs around gender equity and, and fostering gender equality, but also as a business that works with government, industry, um, and private sector. So um, as, a, as a receiver of these types of um, uh, programs, what we find is very important is, is to capture data it's not a very sexy thing to do in, in um, sort of talking on this topic, but it's, it's very important for businesses and governments and, and, and associations to capture data to understand what is working and what's not working. Because we've been part of certain programs where um, they haven't worked, but I know that 
the data on that hasn't been collected and hasn't been fed back into the process. And so, you know, the, these programs have continued and probably aren't as effective as they should be. Looking at a business and working with other, um, you know, governments, private sector and industry, again, what we see is that's really important is collaboration, sharing, um, getting people together to again talk about what works, what doesn't work, you know, what the problem over here can um, is and the solution over here um, can solve. So I guess for me, it, it's data and communication. Very good points. Thank you for sharing that. Data, communication. Anything to add on from your perspective? Yeah, I, I just think to add, um, again, and I'll, I'll tackle this, you know, as a as a corporate perspective, right? Because there's so many different intersections as well, just alone in the corporate world and, and, and obviously not taking into account the external um, intersections. And I think as I look internally, um, it's crucial that we have line of sight of all the different activities that we're performing to basically help drive, improve diversity and drive the equality and equity issues. Because sometimes, you know, everybody's so eager, but everybody goes off in so many different directions that there's no underlying force that brings the initiatives together. And that's where you have a lot of the inconsistencies, different countries doing something differently. And so I think it, it, it's, it's a huge effort to try to corral those initiatives, appoint key individuals that will be spokesperson, obviously as a CEO, the leader to, to be able to drive that and make sure that you're able to account from a data perspective and report back and see that you know, your initiatives are actually starting to pay dividends. See it through and leading by example as well. Thank you. For me, um, the focus is very much around the values. Uh, I approach things uh, through my work in my philanthropic work, which is only part of um, the, the, you know, my activities. I actually also run my own consultancy and I, I'm on the board of a few companies. So, I look at it very much around what are the common values that we have and how can I play a role um, around partnership and collaboration to bring these groups together. And over my career, I've tried to do that. I, it's funny because I started in marketing, but I feel very much my role has evolved uh, in, in our community, in our society, much more around partnerships. Because I do think it takes all the industries, government, corporations, nonprofits, advocates, you know, uh, people from all sectors to come together and work towards common values. So I, I think if we highlight those values very clearly, we can see where all the, the players can, can, co can contribute and, and help move the needle in the right direction. Um, so because, you know, the, the issues that we're talking today about equity, it's really about, it's really touching on our humanity, right? I mean, because basically the world is not fair. People come to opportunities with different challenges. And so what do we all do collectively? We need to have that consciousness in our business, in our government policies, uh, the way we work with nonprofits. It, it's so important to have that common value of humanity, right? So that's how I look at it, uh, much more with that lens. Thank you, Christine. I'm going to pick up a bit on that word fairness and the world not being fair. And maybe you have a, a view of a bit contrarian to equity, right? Naysayers, how do you deal with those? Because there are plenty of research that suggests that actually by implementing equity programs, the perception of the groups that you're building them for gets weakened. So the theory is by actually putting in more equity, people are saying, hey, that's not fair. 
And clearly women are not so strong, therefore they need more help. So it's doing the contrary of what you're trying to achieve. How do you deal with that? It's, it's great you bring that up because in the news recently, was yesterday, the Straits Times reported um, an increase in women uh, in leadership position in boards in Singapore. And I, my first impression when I saw that was, one, you know, I wanted to celebrate it, and I shared it actually with one of my women's groups, and I said, hey guys, look at this, this is fantastic. And then in the chat, there were quite a few people that came back and said, well, it's still not good enough, and, but you know, maybe it's just my optimistic view on life. I, I feel that even though we're not there yet, and we're far from it, for sure, for gender equity, we need to celebrate those little wins. Uh, and then we started getting into an uh, like a discussion around quotas, you know. Um, exactly like what you were saying, you know, some, some people are very against quotas of women on boards because then it, does it actually uh, send a message that women are not capable of getting there on themselves? And then somebody brought up Denmark. Denmark is at 40% of women on boards. Uh, but actually, if, if you look back at the history, in 2004, Denmark was one of the first countries to put quotas for women on boards. So I'm actually quite for quotas and having some rules in place and policies that encourage uh, people to look a little bit harder for women leaders and put the, putting them on board. And I actually have no, um, I don't feel worried about the fact that it might make us women look uh, like we need help. I, I think we, we don't need to worry about that. We just have too much progress still to be made. So we need to focus on those opportunities and take what we can get. That's how I feel personally. Thank you. Thank you. TJ, in an industry that is, I would say, fairly male-dominated, what are the voices that you hear? How do you deal with groups and people say, I'm sorry, we're just not really buying into it, especially when it's a bit passive aggressive as well? Yeah, I, I mean, like I said earlier, right? I mean, you've got some cultural legacy in some of our countries, especially uh, up north. And, and, you know, those are the barriers that we're going to need to obviously try to break down. But I think foundationally and directionally, it's the right thing to do. Um, and remember, we're coming from, from a place where, where women professionals, there has been no equality or, or, or equity for a very long time. And I, I come from the, a place where, you know what? Yes, we are going to have the quotas. We're going to be very purposeful around the decisions that we're going to make. And you know what? We might make some mistakes. Mm. Right? You hear about all this reverse discrimination and all of that and why pay equity? What about us? I'm like, no, we're going we're to do it this way. We're going to drive to make sure that equity is in the workplace. Yes, we're going to get to the quotas. And if we make mistakes, we'll learn from those, right? And we'll share them. We'll be open with each other to say, these are the issues we've uncovered. We made that decision. May not have been the right decision, but we're prepared to sort of learn and go forward. So I think directionally, you know, yes, you're going to have the naysayers, but we're coming from an, an inequitable place, and we're going to need to get, get moving faster. Thank you. Thank you. Naomi, anything to add on? Yeah, I think this is a, a very interesting question because we obviously work with companies that um, are implementing um, procurement targets around you know, engaging with um, women-led businesses or other minorities, also businesses that are taking action on sustainability. And we have come across businesses that um, have these procurement targets set for them, and then they think, oh, well, we can, you know, a women-led business, okay, well, let's, let's give them catering or let's buy flowers from them, but we couldn't possibly um, engage a women-led business for one of our strategic um, suppliers. And so 
in that situation, I think what's important is obviously buy-in, you know, from the whole organisation, but education, because some of these um, these departments that we work with, they don't understand why those targets have been set. They don't understand, you know, the concept of unconscious bias, or they haven't come around, um, they haven't um, come into contact with it. And so until they understand that and understand that these programs are in place to overcome it, then you're always going to have that sort of pushback. And I think you can smooth that, you know, that path a lot better. Also, from our point of view, again, you know, we have benefited from some of these programs. Um, and in the beginning, I looked at them and I thought, what, why am I being singled out? Why am I being almost victimised to, you know, to be looked at as, you know, you need some help? But again, you know, obviously um, I understand unconscious bias and some of the reasoning behind it. Um, and as Christine said, um, as we're getting this support, you take it. There will come a point where we'll say, actually, we don't need it anymore. We don't need a day to celebrate women because we celebrate ourselves all year round. But until we get there, I think these programs um, you know, need to stay. Thank you. Thank you for that. I'm going to dive into some audience questions. Um, and I've got one here. It's got a whopping 42 votes. So it's absolutely the winner. And David, it's for you. <laughs> <laughs> specifically, and, and here we go, and it's an interesting one, and it shows a bit of bias in the question itself, if I may say. <laughs> here goes. How do you, David, balance being a CEO and being a father? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, I'd have to say, um, you know, we all have different, um, I would call, milestones in our careers. Uh, and obviously, as I was single and, and not married, I mean, everything was just about work. You know, you drive work, you want to get it for, as far ahead as possible. And then you get married and you have kids, and before you know it, your priorities start to shift, right? And, and hopefully you've I've been able to sort of advance my career well, so professionally I feel I'm in a great place. But now there's just this whole other dimension to life, which is family. Um, and I know everybody talks about, you know, the silver lining of, of the pandemic, but we were just talking at the table today. And I have four, four, four children, all amazing. Um, but the three elder kids, my bond with them isn't as great as it is with my four-year-old because over the last two, three years, I was working from home. And I spent the most amazing quality time, not only with him, but obviously with the rest. But now, when I do go for a business trip, he's the only one that says, Dad, please don't go. And everybody else is like, okay, we're used to you leaving, Dad. You're back on the road again, so it's okay. But yeah, I mean, it, it is a, it's, a, it's a difficult balance. But again, it, you know, I, I come back to the role of spouses and partners in making sure um, that you are there for the women in your family, right? And that's what the, actually the pandemic taught me is my wife was doing so much in terms of taking care of the family. And for now, being able to have this flexibility in working I'm able to lend a hand when I'm home. 
And that allows her to be able to integrate back into the workplace and become an entrepreneur and do the things that she's always wanted to do. So I think it's an important, and it's an important balance. I love it. Love this question because it's typically asked for women. Uh, so you got it this time, David. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. I've got a, a lovely question here on Patrick, who's sharing, also got 20 votes, Patrick. Equity first, agreed. But I'm curious how equity is defined with cultural elements. Does it differ by culture and, and, and how, if, if so? And Naomi, I'm looking at you because you, as a diplomat, also spend a lot of time in different countries. Do, do you observe cultural differences that we need to overcome or are actually leading examples for us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, equity isn't just a gender issue. It's um, across all aspects of diversity, so cultural, religious, um, gender, um, you know, physical. Um, so w when we look at um, equity in, and actually Singapore is a great place to, to have this conversation, um, for this uh, question to be asked because we work in multicultural societies and people, we have people coming from different um, backgrounds and so we need to be understanding and aware of them and we need to put in place practices that will promote certain um, uh, people of certain cultures where they may not th necessarily thrive um, in a certain setting. So just like, I guess, just like we do it for gender, we, we can do it for, for culture as well. Yeah, thank you. I think there's, you mentioned this as well, right? In the north, you said, mm. of Asia, you experience different Yeah, I mean, approach again, you, you've, got, you've got legacy cultures, right, that are, you know, sort of male-dominated. And I, I look at Japan as, as one of our biggest markets. Um, and yeah, so I think it's, it's just, Con the continuation of thinking about what equity means for a certain segment of the population, obviously for the females, right? Being able to be in leadership positions, being able to be in, in positions where we give them the tools to be able to succeed. Whereas in the past, it was just always, um, you know, so always thought that the males would be, be, be the first to be able to get and use those tools over the females. And then we have to think about language. We think about all the training courses that we have that are still in English. And how do we make sure that, you know, we, they're in Japanese, they're in, they're in, you know, Korean, they're in Mandarin, I mean. Can't agree with you more, or yeah. even the perception of what leadership is, yeah. right? Is that Asian yeah. leadership or Western? Yeah, the and styles. Values, styles, yeah, very powerful. I've got one for you, Christine. That makes me <laughs> chuckle a little bit. Um, <laughs> How do women embrace equity facing constant mansplaining? This one got a lot of votes as well. <laughs> um, how do women face equity with the mansplaining? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes, I've seen it happen a few times. Um, but I actually don't, I mean, when it happens, you can politely, of course, um, you, know, ex you know, speak your mind and, 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 and maybe put, people back in their place in a polite way, but I, I really try not to focus too much on it. Um, when, you know, what actually bothers me more is the man panels, the, 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 the mammal, what do you call that? Panels. Panels. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, it still happens, right? I mean, we're all trying to push for gender equality, and, and, and it's wonderful to have these events around 
you know, International Women's Day, but of course they should really be, we shouldn't, we shouldn't need this event anymore one day, hopefully that's gonna be the case. And occasionally we do meet uh, individuals that are still trying to explain things um, as if, you know, you don't understand anything. Um, and, and I find that with experience, I try not to take it personally. Um, you know, I, I, as, you, as you go through life and you have different, uh, corp, you know, experiences with your career or when you meet many individuals, you, men and women, you will meet individuals that are annoying, right? But how you deal with them is also a, a real test of character, I think. And, and, and you can always learn something from, from everyone. So this is one of the things that my father taught me because actually, you know, growing up in the Philippines and I would go on holiday to France and people ask me, do you have a king in the Philippines? And I would be annoyed. And, and early on he said to me, you will meet people who will say things that you find insulting uh, to you or maybe you know show their ignorance but you can still learn something from them so it's up to you to turn that conversation around and use this opportunity to learn for something from them because if you focus too much on the thing that annoys you and it, it takes over the conversation right so that's kind of how I try to approach those situations as well that's a lovely tip as well and you mentioned your father very powerful example and I think this question also leads to that and any of you can take it um, how do we teach and educate our children with ekathy, boys especially? Any views? How do we teach our boys? I mean, I have two boys yeah. and, two, and two girls. Um, and, and for sure, we try to show that first at home, right? I mean, all of us who have children, uh, we're setting the example very early on on how we treat uh, children from different genders and how we talk about their career, their future, their education, because being aware of our own unconscious bias is so key, isn't it? You know, uh, if we start telling girls, well, you have to be a nurse and you have to be uh, in marketing only as opposed to a boy, you're gonna be in finance and you're gonna be a scientist, then right there, that, there's unconscious bias right there, right? So obviously, I think that starts very early on with, our, with the teachers, with the parents, with the examples that we have at home and elevating those examples and encouraging uh, the children of both sexes to, to go after anything they want to. There's no limit, right? Um, and I try to do that in my own life. I try to, to show my children that you know, anything's possible for a woman. There's no job that a woman cannot do. There really isn't. Um, so I think it starts with that, with showing that example early on and encouraging them. They can do anything they want, both men and women, both girls and boys. I, I have three boys, so, um, and, and I have my little, my little princess. And, and first and foremost, it's like, okay, you know, you've got to make sure you treat you know, the women with respect and you know how to act as a, as a gentleman as you grow up. But at the same time is making sure that my daughter just doesn't, you know, expect to get these things, right? And that she's got to be able to be fierce enough to go out and look for what she wants, get, get what she wants. Um, and um, yeah, she's pretty good at it, by the way. She's, uh, <laughs> she's very, very fierce. And she's our little diva. princess as well, right? Yeah. Yes. But yeah, so that's, that's the thing is don't, don't expect, but at the same time, know what you're capable of doing and go out and get it done. Thank you. Yeah, I think I'll just add to, to what Christine was saying. Um, Im implementing it and ingraining it from a young age, I think is really important. And also having these conversations at home with your friends because our friends um, are managers, they're CEOs, they work in companies, and so the conversations you have personally 
will also influence how that is applied in the business context. And a quick example is we, we were having some friends over the other night and my son absolutely loves the color purple and he loves unicorns. So we've bought a lot of things that are purple and unicorns. And our friends have a daughter and um, we said, oh, he used, used my son's uh, umbrella. It was a purple one with unicorns. And she said to me, you've got two boys. How have you ended up with a, a purple unicorn umbrella? And I just thought, and you know, she's very senior in a, in a financial services firm, and I thought, if you have that, if you have that, um, uh, that way of thinking personally, that is going to translate in how you operate in, in business. So having these, you know, when you come up with these opinions and, and conversations um, in your personal life, it's important to talk about it because that's what will inform people in their business life and in their, in their professions. Very interesting. And there's a question coming in on that specifically, that how should women handle, in this case it's formulated, high ego women leaders? Um, so those struggling with female leaders, maybe with those perceptions. So any, any mm. tips for that from your work experience? Maybe Naomi, you can pick this one up as well, other than like having talking about it, giving different examples. How do you deal with that? Sorry, was the question, how do you... High ego women leaders, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with women ego leaders? Yeah. Oh, um, I guess you should... <laughs> <laughs> that was the deepest side of today. <laughs> Maybe, you know, the same way you deal with men ego leaders. I mean, we need to, yeah, exactly. to do it the same, same way. Same way. I mean, I, I've, I've experienced it a few times in business. And as I said, I, I try not to take it personally because it... Ultimately, when people act in a way that is not courteous or uh, is even condescending, it's them who look bad, right? And it doesn't reflect on who you are or what you stand for. And over the years, I've come to um, always approach those situations with a, with a little bit of a grain of salt and just say, okay, so they're acting this way, but it doesn't mean that I'm less, of course not. And how you react to a situation like that is very telling. And I have had to deal with it on my teams on multiple occasions. I take women who are between 22 to 60 year olds. I take CEOs and pilots and artists and stay-at-home moms. And when we put them in situation of great discomfort, freezing, camping in a tent by the mountainside where the food is maybe not up to scratch for some people, you do get some personalities that come through. Um, and I've had to deal on many occasions with those situations. Um, and you get better at it. You Very get better at it and you don't take it personally. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. There's some questions also in the chat coming in, um, and they're directed to you as well, David, but applies for everyone. So there are lots of things that you could do and actions you can take, but we have scarce resources, right? So we have only this amount of money and time. So what should we stop doing to promote equity? I think it's maybe maybe more fundamental in terms of thinking, again, I'm, I'm looking at this in the corporate world, is thinking that the corporation or the company is gonna solve for inequality. And so for the, for the, for the employees to stop thinking that that is the end all solution. Company's gonna come up with a great initiative and a great plan solved. This is about the colleagues getting engaged and being part of the discussion to get and improve equality 
inequity. But I just see too many people, mm. you know, stay back and say, companies got it, they've got this initiative going, it'll, it'll work, it'll work out. Not leaning in enough. Correct. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I think um, maybe not necessarily what we need to stop doing, but what we need to start doing is seeing equity, again, as a business issue. Mm. It's something that isn't siloed in HR or with a particular, you know, CEO, we're going to make sure our, you know, our CEO is looking after this, we don't need to think about it. It needs to be pervasive and go through the entire organisation. So it's not seen as something separate, it's just something we do. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. It's a business issue. need to treat it as such. So for me, I look at sustainability also with the lens of an impact investor. I've been involved more recently in business um, with different funds who are looking at investing in sustainability. And so what I want to do less of is to only look at it with the lens of decarbonization. There's a lot of focus at the moment in trying to reduce emissions. I mean, I told you I just came back from Antarctica. The planet is warming, and that is because of our emissions. So, of course, it is important to keep focusing on how we can reduce emissions in every sector. But what is missing, I feel, and which I will continue to advocate for, which because it is in line with her planet Earth, is very much the social sustainability aspect. The S of the ESGs, I feel, still underrepresented in many ways in many companies, and so. Having women in leadership position at the policy level, uh, you know, around climate change, in either in corporations or in governments, is key. What has been really nice, I don't know if you saw the news recently, um, the Ocean Treaty came through yesterday, uh, which is a massive milestone. And the leader of the conference was a Singaporean lady as well, uh, which was really, you know, really wonderful to see that she was at the heart of those discussions and she showed a lot of emotion when it, uh, when it came through as well, which I think touched touched me and I'm sure touched a lot of people. So more women, you know, very much so social sustainability for me will be one of my continued focus. Thank you, couldn't agree more. We're running out of time, but I see this question pop up on the app. Um, so I'm gonna go one last round for each and every one of you. And if you could please tell me short, like in a minute, like the one priority the, the one thing you will personally do now, are doing now to really advance gender equity. I'm gonna give you a little bit of time to think about it. So one minute to really improve that because to your point, ESG, the ESP component mm. of it, uh, making sure that we have more female empowerment uh, in the workforce will make a tremendous difference. Um, and, and just to share examples, you're saying, let your voice be heard. I come from a, a family of working women. So my grandmother uh, worked as well. And um, when she got married, she got fired because that was the case in those days, right? So you, you, you work, ah, sorry, you got married. Now you need to go out of the workforce. She fought her way back in, then had her first child, got fired again and left the workforce. Then comes my mother also a working woman, didn't get fired because of getting married, <laughs> so that was better, then still got fired after having the first child, mm. fought her way back, uh, I'm child number three, and she still continued to work. Uh, fortunately, that never happened to me. Um, the only thing that happened when I had my first daughter was a partner saying, not Mercer, by the way, my wife is at home with the children. Um, so that sort of <laughs> passive aggressive one. So I'm truly hoping for that journey that my two daughters, 18 and 16, don't have to go through any of this nonsense yes. again. So I'm really curious 
to hear the actions today, the pledge, and maybe for everyone of you to think about, you know, what you could do to make that journey, um, you know, with a high success that we don't have to have these conversations, yeah. not also for your little princess of four yeah. when she enters the workforce. So if I may start with you, what's the Absolutely. one thing? So that for me, it's very clear. It's very clear. Uh, I talked about women being most vulnerable to climate change. We are, but we're also a huge part of the solution. Uh, and one of the best ways to mitigate climate change is to support and empower women in any way we can, not just through philanthropic projects, but in business, women entrepreneurs, women in leadership at the policy level. So this is going to be my focus for many years to come. It has been the last 10 years. Um, we need to push women in leadership position, bring younger women along with us. I have many mentees who teach me a lot, and I have mentors too. So this is going to be a focus for a long time. Thank you, thank you. Naomi. Yeah, for me, it is driving uh, equity and gender equality through the business so that it eventually it becomes something we don't have to think about and we don't have to talk about. Love that. Yeah, I, I think for me is just based on the experiences we've had over the last couple of years is the power of being able to hear the voices and making sure that women have a safe space to be able to speak up, because when, when you allow that to happen, then you can get to the heart of the issues, right? And then when you can get to the heart of the issues um, and you have all the, uh, the key components to be able to take those actions and, and, and tackle um, inequity or inequality, that's gonna be very powerful. But just make sure we continue to give that safe space for women to be able to speak up. Thank you. That is very powerful. Thank you so much for sharing your stories, you too for being your personal audience. examples. Um, there are lots more questions. They're still around. I think you still need to eat lunch, but I'm sure <laughs> it's, um, uh, it's still sitting there. Um, th there's always time for more, more conversations around this, because as it was so beautifully put by the, by the report of the World Economic Forum, when we advance women, we advance equality for all, societies will flourish, businesses will prosper, and the global economy will thrive. Thank you so much, dear audience. I hope you enjoyed the panel, and a big applause for our dear panelists. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the British Chamber of Commerce Singapore's podcast channel. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe and why not leave us a rating and review on Spotify, Apple, Google and the other podcast platforms. For more information about the Chamber, please visit our website at www.britcham.org.sg and tune in next time for a brand new episode.